Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, a health psychologist in the Boston area, and your host as we investigate the complex and incredible connections between brain and body. Today, we're talking with Michael Holler, a licensed mental health counselor and neurofeedback provider. He's been working for over 35 years with individuals, families, organizations, and relationships of all kinds. Michael specializes in some of the most difficult cases and has been growing more interested in the reasons people get stuck in a relationship that isn't working for them. He argues that sometimes people in a relationship experience it as traumatizing and they end up getting locked into that trauma. He recently published the book Structured Relationship Theory and he'll be talking with the NRBS in a free webinar on May 18th about working with high conflict relationships. I asked Michael about how a trauma dynamic develops in a relationship and how he uses both traditional therapeutic approaches as well as neurofeedback and bioregulation to help relationships get unstuck. Michael, welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Happy to be here. So I've read your bio and you've obviously done a lot of things in your life. What led you to working with people in close relationships? Um, well, I think everything is about relationships, everything we do. I mean, if we just think about what we do as counselors or psychologists, um, that the number one predictor of positive outcome in any form of psychotherapy is the quality of the relationship of therapist to client. So it's important that we find relationships. And I work uh, on a whole bunch of different dimensions of relationships. Um, I do a lot of couples work, but I don't just limit it to that. Um, I advertise myself, sort of advertise myself. I just at least announced that that it's a sex positive practice. So I don't care what their orientation is or their gender identification. I don't care about any of that stuff. I care about the quality of their relationships. And I'm also comfortable with alternative relationships. And I have done a lot of work. Uh, I think I mentioned to you that I was a musician in my first career. So when I came into this career, Everyone said, oh, well, you were a band leader, so you're going to be great with those adolescents. And I was like, but they're hard. And they turned out not to be for me. So everybody threw, you know, when you're when you're first coming into the field, you want referrals. And everybody just threw um, adolescents and kids at me. And that meant that I had to get into parenting. So that's an area that I, I work. It's all about relationships. Everything is. Mm. And so you're going to be giving a webinar for the NRBS on May 18th. And it's it's titled... Stuck relationships and bonding to the trauma, how to work with high conflict relationships. First, how do you define a high conflict relationship? Well, I'm not just a mental health counselor, and I have a bunch of different credentials. Everybody asks me what I want to be when I grow up, and I always say, does that mean I have to grow up? (laughs) And of course, I have all those letters after my name, and I tell everybody, look, if you have a PhD and you have doctor in front of your name, that carries a lot of weight. And if you don't have doctor in front of your name, you have to put the weight on the other side. And it takes a lot more letters to do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they're not, I don't just collect credentials. Every one of those credentials are things that I actually do. Um, And so I'm kind of a Renaissance man. Plus I live in the Key Largo area, which is a small town. And, you know, if you live in a a big city, you're likely more likely to specialize, but in a small town, if you do that, you'll starve. Right. So um, I actually do a lot of things. I do a lot of work interfacing with family court and forensic work and evaluations on that level, too. I'm also a mediator, a parenting coordinator, um, and I've worked in community mental health, um, uh, inpatient psychiatric settings and private practice. Uh, So I kind of have that good broad spectrum 
of experience. And when I worked inpatient, the average length of stay when I started was six to eight weeks. So I actually got some good experience in that venue. It's hard to get that today. Um, and it's all about relationships. So in, in working with family therapy and working with um, marital therapy and working with any relationship therapy, it's all about the relationship. Um, and so to me, it just seems like a, a natural, logical progression, so to speak. Uh, so if I go back to uh, um, the forensic arena, so for example, if I'm a mediator, usually I would get called in by the attorneys when there's high conflict between the couples. And usually it has to do with parenting, but it can also have to do with what's going on in the, in the marriage or the relationship at this point in time. So in, in the, the forensic arena, high conflict would be defined as a, a couple who is still using the court services after about two years, um, couples where they can't get along um, and the children are suffering. Um, a lot of times the attorneys would call me in when there are parenting issues in, involved because that's an area of expertise for me. Um, and also when they just are, you know, fighting with each other, um, so that two attorneys can't get them calmed down enough to make logical decisions. And I'm pretty good at calming people down. Um, some of it, I think is just de-escalation skills I've learned over the years, even before I got into, um, clinical work. When I was a, a band leader, I would have to de-escalate situations. So maybe two people wouldn't fight. I mean, I was pretty good at that. And everybody tells me I have the radio voice and I think that helps. So it's, it, you know, it doesn't hurt. Um, and the other thing that um, when you look at the uh, um, forensic arena, about 80% of people uh, of cases are resolved outside of court. And that includes legal, um, family or, or civil. Um, it's all the same uh, statistics. And I think the reason for that is because people get into that court and it's a mess. So when you look at at couples, as I said, if they're still using the court services of two years after the uh, uh, divorce, and if they have to go back to the court for micromanagement on every little issue. Um, so those are basically what we would define legal in the legal arena as high conflict. In the clinical arena, it would be uh, couples that are trying to keep their marriage together or keep their relationship together or families that are trying to keep their relationship together. And they're, they're so combative with each other that I need to get them calmed down. And there are various means that I utilize to do that. You, you've also talked about how the notion of trauma can play out in these sorts of relationships. And you, you use the term bonding to the trauma. What, what might that mean yeah, in a relationship? That's a term that I coined. Um, I just recently, in a little plug here, shameless plug, I published my book, um, Structured Relationship Theory, back in January of this year. Um, and also a little bit of background because, and I find these tools to be incredibly helpful, my mother was a, an International Transactional Analysis Association teaching member. She was board certified in it. And I learned a lot from her. Okay, so she, she helped train me. And the lady who trained her helped train me as well. And she was trained by Bob and Mary Goulding, who were the founders of Redecision Therapy and, and Virginia Satir. So I've actually met and worked with Virginia Satir. Yes, I'm that old. <laughs> um, and that was, that was quite the privilege, I think. She was amazing. Um, but uh, those those tools um, are tools that I wrote about in my book and I've been using for my 36 years of practice. Um, and the, some of the training that I've had, and I use transactional analysis as my foundational uh, conceptual model. And I do a lot of psychoeducation. So I would teach clients those relationship tools. I'll teach them a simple model of TA. 
I'll teach them about the Cartman Gamer Drama Triangle. And Stephen Cartman was actually a TA therapist. So those two things go together quite nicely. Um, in my senior project and my master's thesis research, I did work on adult couples. And if you've ever tried to get anything other than a convenience sample to do your research in psychology, you know how hard that is to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I researched a model of communication, which I find to be quite valuable. And as I was going through my work, also, I began, began to notice from my experience and my research, you know, the research for my book, um, that uh, there was a lot of trauma involved in couples breakups and relationship family breakdowns. Okay. And some of that, a lot of that has to do with perception. And you've asked me what time it is. I'm about to tell you how to make a watch. So, so bear with me. No. Um, but I can remember one day sitting in undergraduate, one of my undergraduate classes and the professor who came in used to write his entire outline for the course of the day on the blackboard, which was great study, study guide. Okay. But one day he came in and he wrote down perception is an active constructive process. And that stopped me in my tracks. That our that the trauma isn't just about what happens to us, it's about our perception of it. Because to one person, a situation is not traumatizing or threatening at all. To another person, it is, and it's all about their perception. And we know the term trauma bonding, and one of the problems that I've had, especially in working with couples. And this is a classic example of how it occurs, but it isn't the only example, is when one of them has an affair. It can even be a one night stand affair, which, you know, shouldn't be hopefully enough to destroy the relationship mm -hmm. unless the person is so rigid that they can't come off of it. Um, and they perceive that situation as traumatizing. OK, now, how traumatizing does it need to be? Well, they do get to decide consciously or unconsciously. And what will happen very often is they will lock onto that trauma and they'll just obsess and obsess and obsess on it. Okay. And that comes into what I'm talking about with neurofeedback and bioregulation therapy, because my definition of obsession is a thought you can't not think. Mm -hmm. They just go over and over and over it. Well, we know that that's an under aroused left hemisphere and we can train them to, to deescalate some of that using neurofeedback or bioregulation therapy. Um, so, uh, and they'll be very anxious about it, but it's like they hang on to it, like it's their precious teddy bear that they have to hold on to and suck their thumb that keeps them safe when it really doesn't. And they, since they won't let go of it because they're afraid it'll, it'll swing around and get behind them and kick them in the butt, um, it, it begins to destroy the relationship. And the other person, assuming that they've taken ownership and apologized and vowed never to do that again, and then, he, and then that person and I are walk, working on why that happened in the first place, we know it came out of their history um, and they're actively proactively working on it. And the other person will just not let it be finished. So they've become more bonded to the trauma than they are to their partner. And that's not the same as trauma bonding. Although the terms can be a little confusing, you really kind of have to reverse the words. Um, and so what happens that this is the, the proverbial um, question that's hanging in the air is what happens when I perceive my partner as traumatizing and I can't or won't let go of that. Now, if I think about trauma bonding just by comparison, and I think it's important to compare the two to understand the concepts, I think about an old episode of MASH, for those of you who are old, as old as I am and can remember MASH and some of the characters in it, there was um, Hawkeye Pierce, the surgeon who was the sarcastic, snarky, always joking, irreverent guy, right? And then there was the other character who was like the previous hall monitor who was a nurse ratchet kind of person. And 
and they called her Hot Lips Houlihan. And those two characters hated each other. Okay. But on, in one episode, they have to go to another camp, to another MASH unit to do a day's worth of surgery. They get in the Jeep, they go over both of them, good, highly skilled professionals in the, in the script. And they do their surgery. They work for like 12 hours. And as they're driving back, they get lost. Now, they're in Korea, in, in the Korean War. That's not a good place to get lost. So they come to a junction, and they're not quite sure where to go, and they're sitting there for like two minutes. And pretty soon, somebody spotted them, and mortars start to come in. And so they zigzag down the road about a quarter of a mile, and mortars trying to hit them. And they finally come to a, a small little hut, which they call a hooch. And they pull a jeep around behind it to hide it, and they run inside, and they're going to, you know, and it's getting dark, and they're going to spend the night there. So here's two people who hate each other spending the night in this hut with mortars coming down all around them. And then they, the mortars eventually stop. But of course, one of them has a bottle of booze. So they start drinking. Well, they finish the bottle of booze and before the night is up, they've had sex with each other. And these two people who are hate each other and the next morning they wake up and say, oh my God, what have I done? And then they're making a sort of an agreement. Well, we're going to go back to the camp and we'll never speak of this again. And no one must know. And they both agree to that. That's trauma bonding. That is where those two bonded during that time period only because of the trauma. It artificially structured the um, arousal in the brain. And we know mm -hmm. the brain cannot distinguish between states of arousal. So fear and, and sexual excitement tend to run together. Um, <clears throat> so it's not the same as trauma bonding. Bonding to the trauma is where the trauma itself has become my partner, my marital partner, my spouse. I hope that makes it clear. Yeah, absolutely. It it does. Uh, and, you know, I can see where a partner who feels they've been through a trauma would end up bonding to that almost as a protective against the potential for further trauma. You know, if I've got my eye on it, it can't get me. There you go. It's sort of like a, a, it's a, it's a psychodynamic uh, Stockholm syndrome, <laughs> mm -hmm. if I can bastardize the words. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I, so how do you use neurofeedback and bioregulation in your work with, with these folks? There are several ways that, that I use it. It usually has to do with individual work. And of course, we know there's, there's an argument in the field, and I've had this argument with a bunch of different people, um, partially because I come from a, a, a social systems or family systems uh, diagnostic preference. I, I prefer to diagnose that way than the pathology model out of the DSM-5. Um, that's great for insurance, but it doesn't help the client much. And it very often ignores the social system in which they live. Um, so when I work with uh, two people in a relationship and they're, I'm, bear with me, I'm making a big circle here, but I haven't forgotten the question. Um, and this is one of the things I learned from my mom early on. And when I have a, a husband and a wife or a mother and a father in my office, how many clients would you say that I have in my office? Dozens. <laughs> no fair cheating, Saul. Well, Most, I've been doing this for a while, too. I so. I, I, as soon as I asked you that question, I thought, damn, he knows too much for me to trick. Most people, though, would say two. Okay? Exactly. But the answer is it, it probably dozens, but at least three. Okay. And it's, I've got a husband, a wife, a mother, and a father if they have children, and their relationship is my third client. And that's one of the things that my mom taught me early on is that you have to work with all three. So I've had many people saying, you can't work with all three. You have to send the wife to one therapist and the husband to another therapist and, and somebody else has to do couples work. And my question is, how in the hell would you case manage that? You know, one hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing. Yeah, but it's unethical. I'm like, no, it isn't unethical. I consider it unethical to not work with all three of them 
And if a couple comes to me and says, he's going to see a therapist and she's going to see a therapist and they want me to work with them as a couple, I won't do it because I can't. They've crippled me. Um, and also, when there are children involved, okay, and you look at parenting, that relationship is the third parent. Okay, children relate to the relationship differently than they relate to either parent. And I explain this to them because I think it's important for every parent to know. By the time we're five years old, we learn the basic politics of family. For example, every kid, you know this, I know this. There are certain things you would only ask dad first or never ask dad first. There are certain things you'd only ask mom first or alone and you would never ask them together certain things you'd only ask them together you know every kid knows those by the time they're five years old otherwise they couldn't manipulate the way they do Mm -hmm. and kids are little manipulators anybody who works with families and kids knows that Mm -hmm. so um so it's it's important to look at all of the various dynamics now to come back to the question how do i use neurofeedback or um bioregulation therapy and those two have some overlaps in the ways that they are the things that they do but they work from a different standpoint biologically in the body you know neurofeedback works on the brain level mostly and bioregulation therapy works on the gut level so it works mostly through the whole body um and uh with we also know from gottman's work with relationships that couples who are in high conflict however you want to define that when they're having a big fight their heart rates go up over 100 beats per minute Okay, so anything that I can use to calm them down, to soothe the anxiety of the situation, to begin to stabilize the moods, um, and I don't want to go to medication. That's the last place I want to go if I can ever help it. You know, I don't mind using it as a crutch for a while until I can get their training in their body to work right. That's my preference. I mean, it doesn't always go that way. You know, nobody gets everything they want. But um, so with neurofeedback, I would be working on depending on their symptomatology, I would be working on uh, arousing the left hemisphere to inhibit impulse because we know from, for example, I do a lot of work with ADHD. We know that ADHD tends to be, although Daniel Amen would disagree with me to a certain degree um, or on various dimensions, but I, I don't have a spec machine in my office, so I have to work with what I know. But it tends to be an under-aroused left hemisphere, specifically left frontal lobe, and when they, they go into high concentration, their brain behaves like it's asleep. And so we want to elevate the left hemisphere and uh, we want to de-escalate the right hemisphere because that usually tends to be over aroused in these types of situations. And that's especially true when they've grown up with uh, sensory integration issues. Okay. So we want to kind of train their left brain up and the right brain down and and then stabilize them. Um, And depending on which um, uh, neurofeedback system you use, um, there are different approaches to that. You know, some people would use a QEEG. I don't do that. Um, I'm not criticizing it, but I don't, I can't afford a QEEG system. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. But the system I use is called brain paint. Um, I like it. It's a very simple system. And I have, I know that the, the, I know Bill Scott who has developed it pretty well. I don't consider myself the ACE um, neurofeedback scholar. Okay. I'm not as knowledgeable in the, in the underlying functions of things as some people are. But that's a pretty simple use a system to use, and it's got a diagnostic tool built into it. And Bill has offered quite a bit of training in his particular system. So I like it. That's just my preference. It wasn't the original system I was trained on. Um, so that's kind of how I would approach the EEG biofeedback, the neurofeedback aspect. On the other hand, uh, I've been doing that for about 12 years. Um, 
Um, and uh, I've only been doing the bioregulation therapy for about a year now, and I'm absolutely blown away by it. I've been so impressed with it. Um, with the neurofeedback, um, Bill's research, and that's something I'll talk about in my talk, uh, uh, shows that it takes on an average 20 to 40 sessions for it to change and stick. Otherwise, it goes back to homeostasis. Um, and of course, you also have to do it weekly or it breaks down. If you, you know, one, miss one week, it's fine. But, um, but if you miss two or three, you start to lose ground. Um, now, on the other hand, with the bioregulation therapy, I can take a person who's all over the map, escalated in mood, put them on the bioregulation therapy and do the, a very soft, simple um, uh, protocol. Uh, there's there's the beginning ones we call foundation. And within 20 to, to 60 minutes, they're completely calmed down. Hmm. Um, and it's it's just blown me away. Um, and and the, the reg, I, we were just discussing yesterday, I'm actually training with uh, Dr. Uh, Gabor, who designed the system. Um, and we were just debating about what you call a protocol, which is the individual session. And we decided we we're going to call the overall protocol of protocols, a regimen. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. biofeedback takes 20 to 40 sessions, whereas the bioregulation takes four to nine sessions on average. Um, and you get the, you get a lot of the similar results. Um, and there are some things I can do on bioregulation that I don't successfully do on uh, neurofeedback. Um, for example, I have a, a protocol for bipolar disorder, and I'm finding that it's taking people out of mania in one session. And I'm just like, oh, my God, how did I, how did we do this? You know, and they're sitting there with this dumbfounded look on their face going, what's going on? And I say, what do you mean? And they say, it's quiet. I'm like, what's quiet? They're saying, my mind, everything. Is this what people feel like? <laughs> like well, yeah. <laughs> so I'm pretty amazed by it. Are you enjoying this podcast? Find out more about this episode's guest at their NRBS webinar. We have both free and very inexpensive continuing education webinars. So whatever level of interest you have in biofeedback, neurofeedback, and neuromodulation, you'll find plenty to choose from at NRBS. Follow the links in the show notes. We hope to see you at an upcoming program. Can, can you describe the bioregulation a little bit more? I, most of the people who listen are either neurofeedback, yeah. biofeedback providers, or at least interested in that. But I think they may be less familiar with the bioregulation. Yeah, and it's pretty new here. It's, it's more commonly used in Europe. I, I'm guessing I'm probably one of no more than 300 people in the United States using it at this point. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, and it depends on which system you use. I'm not familiar with all the systems. I'm becoming familiar with them. Mm -hmm. But um, it's basically, there's a, a device that's a, about a 12-inch square box, which has circuitry in it, okay? And it's, um, I'm going to get some of this terminology right because I'm still learning it. Um, it's, it's got two inputs which are not identical, okay? It's called a differential am amplifier because mm -hmm. they're, they're different inputs, okay? Um, and so you're taking uh, information from different points of the body running it through this circuitry and then feeding it back in in two forms. Um, pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, which is done by a back pad behind your back mm -hmm. and body biofeedback, which usually comes in at a, at a, a, a plate sensor on your left wrist. Okay. Um, and so it's working through uh, the pulse electromagnetic field therapy, I think is doing the heavy lifting. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's working through your entire thorax. So that pad, you put them behind it. I have them sit in a, a reclining chair. Mm -hmm. And that pad um, sit, is behind them. And it's about two and a half feet tall. 
and it's sending that pulse electromagnetic field through their body. Uh, I think of it as the PEMF as the orchestra and the body biofeedback as the conductor. It's telling mm -hmm. them what to do. And the device is called a cell comm, and it's based on the idea that the cells communicate electrically, which both systems are, are based on, and we know that they sure. do. And we know that no two bodies or no two brains electrochemically are identical, so it's got to tailor itself to them. So it takes the electrical information and communication between the cells information into the device and then analyzes it electronically, which is above my pay grade. I'm not an electrical engineer in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And then uh, and looks at that and says, and I'm oversimplifying here, are these cells communicating correctly? And if they're not, what information do they need to, to have to correct that? Which I think is the basic principle of neurofeedback as well. Mm -hmm. um, and and then it, it, so it creates that feedback loop. So we can't exactly call it treatment in either um, system because it's, it's the, it's the uh, body or the brain treating itself using that mm -hmm. feedback loop. Um, and so it sends that information back in um, and, and has it corrected. But it's working in all kinds of systems. So it's really good for pain management. Um, it's really good for anxiety, depression, trauma. The, relax the reactions I'm getting on that are quick and, and powerful. Um, I've actually had two people come in with COVID long haul symptoms and done one, uh, um, one session and they, their symptoms went away, didn't come back. I don't know why or how that works exactly, but I'm assuming that the, uh, the, the virus is because it's a, it's a retrovirus. So it mutates. I, I'm assuming that it's kind of taking over and, and hijacking a lot of the functions of the biological system. And this is setting it right. But I didn't expect it to work that quickly. And I certainly wouldn't claim that it always does. I don't know. I've got two anecdotal experiences of that, but they're both consistent. Um, and I just gave it a shot. You know, I don't know if this will help you or not, but let's give it a shot. And, and it did. I, I hate to do that, but sometimes you do what you got to do with what you have. And if it works, it works, you know. So, you know, when I think about physiology and, and using it with relationships. I always think of the Gottmans. Um, it, but I believe that they, they primarily measured and right. you're actually now working with trying to train uh, changes in the physiologic systems. How, how are you finding that integrates with the more traditional psychotherapeutic interventions that you were trained to use? I'm a therapist first and foremost. That's what I was trained as and I'm psychodynamic and I can't always explain and I think, I, you know, most a lot of my colleagues I've talked to who've been doing this for a while have the same experience. For example, I've done a lot of work with people who were sexually abused as children. I was never sexually abused. How would I know that? But a lot of times a client comes in and sits down and they haven't said a word yet. And I already know that they were sexually abused as a child. And I couldn't tell you how I know that. And it's not 100 percent, but it's a it's a, a pretty high percentage of perceptions. Um, and I think one of the things that. Um, the, the bioregulation therapy looks at and, and is, the, is the looking at the perception of what areas of the body could be uh, the source of the problems. Same is true, I think, for neurofeedback. We don't think diagnostically in the same ways. And I, am, I haven't forgotten your question. Um, so we look more at what's happening at the biological function level, the brain function, the body function, what, what's causing these symptoms to occur. Don't really care what the diagnosis is. It no longer is important. So the DSM-5 really becomes almost irrelevant, except we have to use it for insurance. So I'm more concerned with getting these people help than I am with putting a label on them. Um, I know how to put Google labels, I, but it's, I don't find it to be highly functional. 
But one of the things that, that kind of causes me to lean over a little towards bioregulation therapy is if I'm doing neurofeedback, I can't talk to them because it interferes with their performance. But if I'm doing bioregulation therapy, I can do a session while I do it. Mm. And they, the two are, are, are synergistic, I think. They, mm -hmm. they sort of amplify. And this is especially true with trauma because we can talk directly about the trauma and they're not re-traumatized because it's keeping the body in that calm state. And I think, and I talk about this in the last chapter of my book, um, and I think most people are listening to us that are clinicians anyway, have read um, Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. And if you haven't read, uh, especially if you're uh, in electromedicine, like neurofeedback or bioregulation therapy, if you haven't read Stephen Porges' book, The Polyvagal Therapy, you need to, okay? And he talks in great detail about this. And one of the things that we can't ignore that's running through the entire thorax is the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is the site of, of uh, in, in its uh, uh, ventral circuit of regulating the body and the organs in the way that they're supposed to. And we have to remember that those organs, a lot of those organs in there are detoxifying agents. You know, the kidneys, the pancreas, the liver, they're taking toxins out of the bloodstream if they're working right. And then of course we need to flush those out. But if they're not, or if we end up going into uh, the, the sympathetic nervous system and getting locked there in fight or flight, and it's easy to get locked there, um, then I don't ever produce the norepinephrine that's going to calm my system back down and put it back into the ventral circuit because that that vagal nerve, vagus nerve, has three circuits. You know, there's the ventral, and then there's the sympathetic nervous system, and then there's the dorsal. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. Uh, and the dorsal system is an unmyelated nerve. It's the only unmyelated nerve in our body. And that's that's freeze. And a lot of times we talk about fight or flight, people do not freeze, but that's where dissociation is. And we, lizards do that well. Possums do that well. We don't handle it so well because it involves a lower level of oxygen. And we don't survive that. Um, so when we get locked in the fight or flight, we're continually pulling the stress hormones into our system. And it's doing all kinds of damage that we all know about. And we're having to train people to do box breathing and, and nasal breathing to get them to calm themselves down. We happen to know that the left nostril triggers the parasympathetic nervous system. So that's helpful. But if I can use the other devices, and alpha theta is a good example in the EEG, you know, because you can you can have them work on their trauma without having to talk about it. But you never know exactly what they're processing. Um, and are they in... in, in, in um, in TA, we have what's called redecision therapy, and taking all those old decisions we make and making a redecision that replaces it is, to me, the healing part. Because mm -hmm. I make sure that old decision is existing in a cubby hole attached by a rubber band, and typically what people do is they pull it out, stretch the rubber band, and say, how's this working? Well, this is as screwed up as a soup sandwich. And then they say, I just won't do that anymore. And we all know that that doesn't work for any more than three months. In TA, they call that counter script going against my family script. But if I put a redecision in there, it can't reoccupy that cubby hole. It can't default back into place. So that's, you know, we know that catharsis doesn't heal. It's the redecision that makes the healing. And so that's really the bridge is if I can work with them while they're processing the trauma and they can be making redecisions, then we can un we can lock them out of the trauma anyway. Or we can at least at least lock the trauma out of their lives. Then it becomes just a memory. You know, then they don't flash back every time they think of it, that kind of thing. And, and this is the, or it sounds like the mm -hmm. physiologic analogy to the 
individual being locked to trauma, being locked in sympathetic uh -huh. nervous system activity. Uh -huh. And so you're going at it in sort of multiple directions, sometimes at the same time. Yeah, I, I think of it on all those different levels at the mm -hmm. same time, you know, on the, uh, on the uh, psychodynamic level, on the behavioral level, and on the uh, biological level. To me, they're all linked. You mentioned your book, and I do want to give you a chance to promote it. Uh, it's called Structured Relationship Theory, Nothing Less Would Have Sufficed. So first, congratulations for publishing. I know, I know what, a, what a, a task that is. Uh, what, what led you to write this particular book? Uh, oh boy, <laughs> ask me. Yeah, it's that's that's a, a broad spectrum. For one, I I'm a good technical writer. You know, I've always I didn't used to know that, but uh, so but I I wanted to write a book about relationships. I've wanted to write it for many years. Um, I actually was trying to partner with a, another person who uh, we were going to write it together, and she had lupus, and her lupus just exploded. And uh, after about a year of waiting, I said, well, I can't wait on this anymore. I'm just going to go ahead and finish it. Um, and I began to kind of explore my way through it. But what I do in therapy is I, I do a lot of psychoeducation, so I teach relationship tools. Um, and I found that to be extremely productive. And I have very little recidivism uh, when I do that. Um, and so not only do they know, not only do things change, but they know exactly how they change. They know what tools they used. I can teach those tools. I can put them in place. And then I can come back and coach and coach and coach using them. And that creates um, a, a repeatable model, constructive model in their head. And I really felt like it was working very, very well. And it's not just me. I think I do a good job of it, but you know, not all of these constructs are mine. You know, they're, they're synergistic. No, there's nothing new under the sun. And I'm kind of passing on some of the gifts I got when I was trained that I could never have paid for. So I've tried to write it in two, two directions at the same time. You know, I wanted the clinicians to be able to benefit from it. So it wasn't fluffy. On the other hand, I wanted, lay people to be able to read it and understand it. So anytime I use any kind of jargon word, I define it, which is the same thing I do in therapy. So that's, it's, it's really consistent with what I do. It's just a, a published extension of what I'm doing. And then it's also a reference. So when I teach people these things, they can always go back to it anytime they want to read it. Well, again, congratulations. And we'll, we'll put a link to the book in, in the show notes. Well, I always like to end these discussions with one thing questions, if that's okay. Sure. So what, what is one thing you would like our audience to take from our conversation? Um, that there are many options as to how you can proceed. Don't rule them out. Um, a lot of new things coming down the pike, which I was just um, looking at, I was doing a substance abuse evaluation and somebody had put something about um, uh, best practices and uh, evidence-based and, and evidence-based is great and wonderful. I endorse it. I believe it. But by the same token, one of my colleagues who I very deeply respect, his name was Gray Otis, once asked me, he said, can you show me the evidence that evidence-based is always best practice? And no, you can't because anything that's coming up that's new isn't evidence-based yet, but it doesn't mean it won't be. And it doesn't mean it isn't a good idea. And it doesn't mean it's not the root of a good idea that could be modified into what's going to be evidence-based in, in the future. So I think we need to not poo-poo things or rule them out without investigating or at least looking into them. Perhaps in, in, that, in the spirit of, of that answer, 
you've obviously done a lot of things in your life and you use a, a lot of approaches, integrate a lot of approaches into the work. What is one strategy or tool that you use in your own life? In my own life or in my work with my clients? In your, your own life. Oh, well, I went through my own therapy. I, my mom told me, she said, you, you can never take a client any further than you've gone yourself. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have everything wrong with you, that every client walks in the door with you. That's good case. Right. But, but by the same token, I never ask a client to walk a road I wouldn't walk. And also, I've been married for 33 years. This is my second marriage. My first one didn't go so well, but that's why I got into therapy. Mm -hmm. um, but um, my wife, I, I tell people it must have been very difficult marrying me without having gone through therapy. And I can't be her therapist for obvious reasons, but... What I could do was teach her the tools that I had learned and she learned them. So we both use those. So for example, for us, a really bad fight is five minutes. No name calling, no yelling, just aggravation and then resolving. And so we use what I teach. And it's worked pretty pretty well for 33 years. Well, it's, it's always good to know that the tools we try to get our clients to use work in, in, in real life, or at least in our real lives. Yeah, I wouldn't ask them to do it if I didn't do it. Well, Michael, again, thank you so much for joining us today, and I am looking forward to your talk on the 18th. Well, I thank you for inviting me. You are listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Our guest today was Michael Holler, expert in high-conflict relationships. Find out more about him and his work in the show notes. If you want to see his talk, you can register or see a recording by following the free webinars link. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate us, and leave reviews at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Reviews help us get more listeners, and that's more people who can learn about and benefit from biofeedback and neurofeedback. Also, let us know what you think by sending us an email. Our address is healthybrain at nrbs.org. Healthy Brain Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. It is a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Happy Body.